0: Welcome to a brand new episode of Seize the Moment podcast. And today we have a very special guest. Today we have on Chuck Thompson. He's the author of the widely reviewed political screed, Better Off Without Him, a Northern Manifesto for Southern Secession. His writing has appeared in Outside, Politico, Esquire, Men's Journal, New Republic, and many other publications. He's the writer and executive producer of the Paramount Plus three-part music documentary, Sometimes When We Touch?, the rain ruin and resurrection of soft rock and his newest book available now is called the status revolution the improbable story of how the lowbrow became the highbrow welcome chuck it's good to have you on
1: thanks a lot good to be here guys
2: yeah, absolutely. And so in his book, Chuck wrote, culture is never static. It changes with the times and the moods of the people who create and consume it. What once seemed vulgar and lowbrow can become chic and highbrow in the blink of an eye, and vice versa. But the most enduring works of art, regardless of their status, are those that speak to the human experience in a profound and lasting way. So I really love that. And what that kind of tells us is that whatever is popular is essentially uh it's it's essentially changing, right? It's changing and it's not necessarily of any particular intrinsic value. And I think we're a lot of us kind of get stuck when we think of like, let's say luxury items, work of art or whatever, right? Is I think that we get stuck on this notion that they are inherently worth something. And so when you talk about in your book, uh, you talk about kind of the evolution of status and how it sort of shifted in the early part of the 20th century and where it is now, right? Which obviously tells us that maybe it's not as enduring or the kind of value, or maybe some of the inherent value isn't as enduring as we would like to think. So can you kind of take us through that evolution and sort of how that's changed and what was once considered to be of high class or of high status and how it's kind of shifted into more uh, I don't know what what would you call it? It's more um more kind of basic now or more sort of seen as uh, uh, sort of you know kind of a, it's more repugnant to many people now, right? And sort of how that shifted into other areas that are now conceived of as being of high status.
1: Well, I think the first point that you kind of touched on is that status is always going to be a reflection of societal values and as societal values change, um, the markers of status and what is considered, you know, prestigious or a, a status symbol is going to change along with those shifting values. Um, you know, I start with very briefly, I give a very brief recap of the way um, the status has been reflected through society, particularly Western society, but not exclusively. Um, you know, for, the, for most of the run of Judeo-Christian civilization, um, status has been looked upon as something that's kind of sinful, Or as a moral failing of people that you know, um, particularly in in a a Christian uh, church or clergy that might have discouraged the accumulation of wealth or or goods, and and you know extolled the virtues of of poverty and things like that. Um, In a a society that's clearly dominated by those values, um, any sort of reaching for status is going to be looked at. Um, as, a, as a moral failing, as one of the seven deadly sins, you know, greed and, and uh, sloth and these kind of things. Um, but the real jump, I think, for me, and that, that gets really interesting is, is right basically with the Industrial Revolution, and, you know, we suddenly have this hyper consumer society that's just building and building, and we have kind of the, the model of finance capitalism taking over. And the real big marker of status early on comes in a book called um, The Theory of the Leisure, Leisure Class by an economist named Thorsten Veblen. Uh, that book came out in 1899. And um, Veblen you know, was this real social critic of, of uh, status seeking and wealth accumulation in the consumer age. And this is gonna sort of lay the foundation for this revolution that I'm feeling we're in now. But just by the title of his book, The Theory of the Leisure Class, Veblen essentially defined status and you know what he saw reflected in the society the ultimate expression of status was an almost aristocratic abundance of leisure time you know someone who did not have to work was the pinnacle you know the finance capitalist the, the person who just sat back in his or her mansion and estate and, you know, whatever horseless carriage, perhaps he had you know, early yeah. running around early bends or something that this was the person that defined status. You do not have to work, right? The woman who wore the corset or the Chinese woman whose feet were bound really to show that she did not have to labor in the rice fields or, or these types of things. Um, that, um, Veblen remains really influential to this day, and there are a lot of people out there that will tell you, uh, people who study this more even than I have, sociologists, economists, that um, that Veblen remains um, kind of the touchstone for all discussions about status and in, in, in Western society. I think that's totally wrong. I think. Veblen's really problematic for a lot of reasons, but his his book and his his words, um, you know, were, were only strengthened by guys like in the middle of the 20th century, John Kenneth Galbraith, wrote *The Affluent Society* which was another critique of affluence and consumerism. Um, Vance Packard, who wrote The Status Seekers in the 1950s, uh, was a journalist who um, was really popular and really influential. He, He coined that term status seeking. And again, these guys basically took Veblen's message of status seeking is bad it's wrong it it shows a corrosive element in society packard took it a step further to say that people who uh, engaged in status seeking were mere dupes of kind of madison avenue (laughs) advertising sharks that you are you're kind of a pawn of a big marketing so to speak that all these impulses that you're feeling to to upgrade your car to keep up with the joneses to keep your lawn nice to get a better job to dress well to get the best purebred dog, that these were all artificial um, impulses that were essentially created or at least uh, manipulated by advertising and marketing sharks. So that's kind of where most people, I think, even today, if you, if you look down, it's a sort of status seeking is kind of a pejorative term, Right. So, the big shift, and I feel like I'm talking a little bit long here, guys. But no, it's okay. Keep,
2: yeah, yeah. Because I, I asked about the evolution. So, that's actually on me. It's okay. Yeah, please keep I, it.
1: Summarizing the first three okay. chapters of the book, right? Um, a couple of big shifts happen about in the last 10 or 15 or 20 years. And I, th- I think, especially, on, I, I sort of define that this, the shift in status and the way we view status is happening on four levels. And there's sort of four primary forces, one of which is scientific breakthroughs that provide mm-hmm. us with a completely new understanding of how the brain processes status. And I can you know talk in, in depth about that if you like, because I think it's really interesting and I think it's one of the, the big changers. Um,
2: functional Please, yeah.
1: magnetic resonance imaging is one of the biggest, we kind of look at the brain as it processes status. And we can see that status is actually a, a measurable biological function. Another one is that is in terms of luxury marketing, these multinational corporations that have swallowed all of these small family owned luxury brands, which were the pinnacle of consumer society status, right? All these were these small, tiny little brands producing, you know, a limited uh, quantity of their luxury goods year after year. They've all been swallowed up by these big corporate entities. And these big luxury brands now are needing to find new ways to market and sell luxury products in a world that's become glutted with with luxury products, and in which there's now four or five titanic companies that are doing battle for market share. That was not what luxury goods were about. Fifty years ago, at all, um, world of academia has really changed. Academia, um, you know, in universities, colleges, whatnot, uh, is a place where um, ideas about status, prestige, and value in society are, are studied, they're measured, and they're conveyed to society. And, and and world of academia is fundamentally different now than it was in. Thorsten Veblen's days, or even than it was in the 1960s or 70s. It's much more feminized and it's much more diverse. And that is having a really profound effect on the types of studies that are carried out, who carries them out, the conclusions that are drawn. Um, And finally, there are, you know, I think, particularly in the last 5, 10, 15 years, um, these sort of social equality and justice movements that are driving concepts of inclusivity while challenging our traditional definitions of privilege um who has it who how did they get it who should have it and and wealth and and things like that so i think those are four big drivers of of the changes that we're seeing
0: what's what's fascinating is that originally when one might have thought of what what is status what is status or what what is high status look like right you you'd imagine somebody who's incredibly rich uh like you said doesn't have to work right uh but what's interesting is that um, due to those corrosive elements that you're discussing, right, uh, like like via marketing, right, creating these artificially sort of created uh, impulses that sort of um, make us want things that uh, you know automatically now convey status where otherwise before they didn't, right. So what's interesting is, um, or, or sorry, referring to even like let's say the uh, academia, right, uh, virtue signaling, right. Like for example, if if you uh, if you virtue signal now, that's a way to convey status, right? Whereas before it had, you had to be rich or something like that, but now there's other ways to sort of gain that status, and people are sort of uh, more or less, we could say,
2: falling for it, right? Right. It kind of went from uh, a sort of "I'm better than you because I have more money than you" to "I'm better than you because I'm a better person than you are." Well,
1: you, know? you can you can certainly gain a certain type of of. Social capital by doing that. I think what you're sort of getting at in a roundabout way, and that I think yeah. is pretty interesting, is you know I've I've done a couple interviews for this book where you know, people might ask, well, what is status? And um, you know I could and you could look up the definition of status in the dictionary, but the real answer right now is that no one knows for sure. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what's really interesting, and that's part of what you know I've termed this status revolution. I mean, for for a variety of reasons, our collective ideas of status and prestige and privilege are in this real state of flux, right? And as I said before, it's kind of a a reflection of of society and its values. Um, So if you ask 10 Americans right now, what is the United States, you'll get 20 different answers, right? So because we're in this state of social upheaval, right? And this is kind of being reflected in in our shifting uh, concepts of status and and how we perceive ourselves in in relation to others. Um, But you're right. I mean, um, in terms of Evelyn and in terms of this, glut of, uh, you know, affluence and not having to work and leisure time, um, you know, right now, I think how indispensable someone is to their work cohort defines them just as much as where they go on vacation, right? right? In this kind of hustle culture, how much you are needed. Um, it's not just how much money you have, it's how hard you work for it, how many network connections you have, right? How many people depend on you and, and listen to you? things like that. So you can, you can gain that status without um, having a whole ton of money.
2: Yeah.
0: What's interesting. So I'm curious, uh, what exactly maybe prompted you to write the book? Is it that, is it that, uh, you see that the status, what defines status or what, uh, somebody can do to gain status is in constant flux is that it or is it that we care so much about status and it's that's a that's sort of a corrosive part of our nature and then you you're highlighting that so that we become more aware of it like uh, what was exactly is uh, your motivation
1: well um i have to admit i've i've always been a little bit confused by status and not really cared about the traditional markers of it. many years ago i walked through St. Mark's Square in Venice, Italy, when I was on vacation and it was great and architecture is fantastic and Venice is amazing. And, um, and I looked around at all these designer shops that lined this, this plaza, right? St. Mark's, it's almost holy place. And I thought, who comes all the way to Venice to buy the same overpriced crap and suit and necklace and watch that I can buy in Denver or Seattle or Nagoya, Japan or, France? you know, I was like, why? who the hell would come all the way here and do this i kind of i grew up in a tourist town in Juneau, alaska and the mm-hmm. main tourist drag is lined with um luxury jewelry shops like what the you know i don't know, I don't <laughs> know how much swearing we're doing on that show here. oh tonight. you
2: can curse all you want all you yeah.
1: want anyway i was just I've, I've always i've always been really bored with um, these ideas of, you know, I never watched Pimp My Ride or MTV Cribs, right? It's just like, mm-hmm. I just, yeah. the lifestyles of the rich and famous, I never cared about that stuff. And so, but I still recognize that status is a really, obviously, it's an important driver in everyday life. So yeah. I wanted to kind of look at that. And so what I would say is, you know, this is not, and I say it in the book, it's, it's this isn't a book about famous designer brands or orgies of overindulgence or things like that. There's a little bit of that in here for sure. I mean, you have to get into that a little bit. But, you know, for example, I wanted to find places where status was important, but being um, reflected in different ways, right? That's why I went up to this um, First Nations village in British Columbia to watch this totem carver who was engaged in this project to sort of reestablish status in his village by uh, carving a totem pole. Um, A guy in uh, Southern Italy, Paolo Scudieri, who I wanted to go see, um, who had become a titan of the luxury car industry, but didn't start that way and really sort of did so as a means, at least according to him, to bring social justice to his, what he considered his downtrodden people of his community in Southern Italy. Um, mm-hmm. of course, he got pretty wealthy along the way himself. But I think he'd admit that, but nevertheless, you know, according to him, that was his driving motivation. And the more I kind of met people like this, I realized that they're, um, very few people who are at the top of the status game and who are now these big influencers and in status started that way. They're, they don't tend to be silver spoon kids. Um, some of them do. Of course, there's exceptions to everything. But that's why that, that sort of gets to the subtitle of the book, which is how the lowbrow became the highbrow the unlikely story about the lowbrow became the highbrow um, because it is kind of this constant battle, um, you know, um, for what, um, you know, between sort of challengers to the s- status quo status and and those on top. And so yeah. I guess all of these things answer your question. It's a bit of a roundabout answer, um, Ellen, but, um, you know, I just, I knew that status was important and valued um, almost to the extent of of money, really, in this society. And yet I wasn't quite sure why and why I didn't care about the traditional markers of status. And I found out through in- researching this book that i'm not alone in that most people are kind of like me
0: yeah, yeah and i could see that um social media must definitely have a giant like a huge impact on what people view as popular or status worthy right especially uh, marketers are using yeah facebook instagram twitter all that to market to people right so i could i could see how um that can shift very quickly, right? What, what What's popular now? Uh, it, it just takes another person or another entity uh, making something go viral, right? To uh, perhaps make that a status worthy symbol uh, for people to try to obtain.
1: So yeah, I think yeah. social media, the zeitgeist that says exposure and clicks and influence are more important than salary in a lot of ways, right? And right. I think this also gets to a point which um, it's a little confusing that we kind of automatically conflate wealth with status and certainly money and, you know, rich people and all that, and, and lots of nice possessions and a luxury yacht can indeed be a reflection of your status in your community or society. That is true, but it's not the only one. Um, we don't have to think of a lot of money equaling a lot of status all the time. Um, think of, I mean, the real basic example is, a clergy, a religious person who might take a vow of poverty. I mean, the Pope gets no salary, right? Officially, the Pope makes no money. Um, But clearly, the Pope has a hell of a lot of status within the Catholic Church and even beyond. Think of the the captain of a high school sports team, uh, basketball team, football player, quarterback, whatever. Um, He or her might have a ton of status within that. High school community right? writers are converted uh status right we're often asked to dispense our wisdom on uh, podcasts like this one but um as i like to say there's a good reason they often say of writers he died penniless
2: mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah. And just in thinking about it in terms of psychology, um, so I know you mentioned the neuroscientific aspect of it, which I really want to get into. You know, so you have like somebody like let's say Jordan Peterson, right? So he would say, Well, status is pretty and status seeking is pretty natural, that like human hierarchies are natural. So I don't really know how true that is, but what I do know is in terms of the psychological research, and this is something I often focus on in my writing uh pride, self esteem. Uh, usually those things aren't exactly the same, but sometimes the two concepts are conflated. Where the idea is like pride is sort of a form of self esteem in the sense of like you build up enough pride. that kind of equates to or amounts to your self-esteem on the whole, right? So when we think about sort of what makes us feel good and what's related directly or most directly to mental health, it's actually pride and it is status. It's feeling good about yourself, feeling good about your group. And, you know, your groups could be several, right? You could identify with several groups. But the interesting part of that is that there's this sort of downside to status is that automatically, and this is where I think Peterson's idea comes in, is that whether or not hierarchies are natural, I think comparison is natural. So when you think about, um, let's say, you know, if I'm thinking, of myself, or let's say our podcast, like, let's take this for instance, right? So if I think of our podcast, and even though this is not true, let's say I'm like, oh, our podcast is like one of the best podcasts in the country, right? So let's say that's the case. Automatically, I'm already comparing myself downward, right? Uh, and I'm saying, okay, here are these other podcasts that are clearly not anywhere near where we are. Um, so when we think about status and pride, I think it's, it's so hard to kind of disconnect that. So on the one hand, you're saying, okay, status and pride and you know, self-esteem, they're related to mental health and mental well-being. But on the other hand, they're also related to a lot of intergroup content. Conflict. And so we had uh psychologist David Myers on, and he's really big on this. And he says, well, pride is actually not that great, even though, yes, in the short term, it does build up your self-esteem. In the long term, it kind of contributes to war and sort of destruction and conflict or whatever. So ultimately we have to kind of revisit it, right? So um, yeah. So in your Chuck, in your work, what have you found about sort of more about the kind of beneficial elements of status, you know, both psychologically, uh communally, personally, interpersonally. And then what about some of the destructive elements of it too?
1: Well, Leon, first of all, I was told this was one of the best podcasts in the country.
2: <laughs> yeah, we're going to make a clip of that. I love it. <laughs> I wouldn't be
1: here if not for not <laughs> <laughs> Um Well, look, I can't claim to have done the same amount of research that, you know, clinical psychologists and whatnot, maybe some of your other guests have had. But what I can say this is this, is that, well, uh, to answer your question, I guess maybe a, fr- a friend of mine re- read the book. And said well i liked your book but he goes i had the real problem i said i, I kind of hear you saying you know greed is good inevitable mm-hmm. with this stuff right and i said i don't think i said greed is good i said i or, or that status is good or greed is good i think i said status is inevitable and that's kind of what i've come to believe by um talking to guys like steven quartz at caltech uh who did a great book called cool i forget the net ask was his co-writer i forget his um the subtitle of that book but um You know, I I just, I try to, I'm not really putting value, and this might be a disappointing answer for you guys, but I tried to go through this book and not really put a value judgment on what I was finding to be true about status or not. I was just trying to say, these are the people that are influencing status, that are driving our communal understanding of status, that are driving a change, a sea change in the way that academia and corporations and whatnot, um, social movements see status. And again, I kind of go back to this, this, my little catchphrase on one of these is that status is no longer sin, it's biology. Yeah. Now that gets to your question of are these natural functions or not? Are hierarchies, you know, and, and maybe you've had people on the show that have argued against this. I mean, I, I, I mean the best thing to do is look at um, you know, any animal kingdom, right? <laughs> Social hierarchies um, are developed very quickly within yeah. any animal kingdom. So as long as that, we're going to accept that we're, really part of the animal kingdom and we're just primates. Um, we, we might do this on a, a little bit more intelligent or sophisticated scale, but I think all of that sophistication intelligence, intelligence just masks a, a, a biological drive. And the interesting thing for that to me was one of the studies that I really liked, and it's it's been written about before, but a woman named Hilke Plassman um, did in 2011 at Caltech. There was one of these kind of neat studies. I always like these um, psych studies where they kind of have a little faint and they don't really tell, you know, the subject to the guy who's administering this electric shock to the, to the person doesn't realize that he or she's the one that's actually (laughs) the subject of the test. Um, So she did this test about um, uh, using, to find out how, how people reacted to different, um, differently priced bottles of wine, like an expensive wine, a cheap wine, and a sort of mid-level wine. So she did this experiment where she had, I don't know, 30 or 40 people come in, and they were using this functional magnetic resonance imaging, right? They put them in an MRI machine. And they told the the subjects that we're going to try to test the um, sort of digestive properties of three different types of wines, and we're going to try to, we're hooking you all to see how these things affect how you process, I don't know, food or whatever the the faint was Hmm. so they would they would um you know give these people like a cheap bottle of wine glass of wine or sip of wine and say well this is this um you know five dollar bottle of cab that we bought at trader joe's down the street and they have them drink it and that you know they were measuring you know their what was going on in their brain at the same time and then they would say well this is kind of a mid price this is a 25 five dollar bottle of wine that's come from this wine shop you know in midtown or whatever and then they said, well, here's this $150 wine that, you know, we imported a, a limited supply from directly from the Chateau in France, right? Yeah. And what they noticed was that when people were sipping what they thought was the high-priced wine, their, their sort of dopamine and endorphins just went bananas, right? Just went bonkers, just lit up. And when they were drinking the cheap wine, they were just kind of dormant, didn't do anything. The mid-priced wine, maybe a little bit. Of course, what the subjects didn't know, they were drinking the same wine every time. Right, so the reactions <laughs> to the wine were simply how much they thought it cost, and therefore this association with status or prestige. Right, and right. so what this what this study proved to um, Plasman and her team, and as well as to me, I was convinced. I read the whole study a couple times before writing about it in the book. Was that um, expensive? You know, it, it's really we all love to critique. The wine snob who can't even right the Somali when blindfolded or when given a choice of wines in paper bags, can't distinguish the $150 estate, you know, vintage limited run to the to the $5, you know, Texas plonk that right, they right. get. Right. Everybody loves laughing at that stuff. But the, what this proved is that actually people do like expensive wine more. Expensive wine does make people feel better than cheap wine, not for the reasons that it tastes better or has a better you know mouthfeel or whatever kind of stuff that they want to come up with but because it it, in associating it with a lot of status they are they literally are feeling better right they're getting more dopamine and all that stuff so to me that that shows that this is a biological function right it's not something that's created now you can't say and maybe one of your I'm, i'm leon i'm looking at your face and i'm hearing your next question which is that doesn't prove that it's necessarily biological. Our society may have created that. Sort of
2: actually thing. i agree with you i actually don't yeah, i actually agree with you oh wait i actually want to tell you guys an interesting story so because, because like we were assholes as like uh teenagers and like uh whatever it was uh team whatever comes after teenager like as young adults i guess right so check this story out. oh my god so we're at this house party right and like again you know we're assholes and you know of course we're super competitive because that's what guys do and so there's like this really good looking guy there right and his girlfriend is like stunning so we're like oh my god like fuck this guy right so we have two bottles of liquor with us right so one is a really expensive bottle of Hennessy. The other is this garbage liquor called John Barr. So John Barr is so terrible that literally, first of all, it tastes like shit, number one. But second of all, it resembles Johnny Walker, but just in the labeling because they have to sell this garbage, right? And it also, I think, came in the plastic bottle too, which was crazy, right? So this guy, right? He's like, oh, hey, guys, you know, can I come drink with you? We're like, oh, yeah, sure, man, whatever. So he sits down and he's like, oh, what are you guys drinking? Oh, you know, Hennessy, right? And so now me and my friend kind of look at each other. And we're like, oh, let's, let's start fucking with him. So we're like, yeah, man, but like um, Uh, You can't have the Hennessy. Uh, No, I'm sorry. So they're like, we're like, yeah, you can have the Hennessy, but you can't have the John Barr. And he's like, Oh, why? And we're like, uh, because it's like, it's really expensive, man. I mean, if you want, you could ship down. It's like, you know, $50 a person. And so he says, wow, really? He's like, you know, I'm a bartender. I- I've never even heard of it. We're like, uh, yeah, honestly, we probably, we wouldn't have expected you to, but that's all right. Just drink the Hennessy, right? So this guy's like, he's taking the shots at the Hennessy and he's like, I'm sitting there looking at that bottle. And so we're like, you want to have a shot? And he's like, shit, man, you know, I didn't want to be a dick, but like, yeah, I really want to try it. And we're like, Dude, should we just let him have a shot? And my friend was like, fine, whatever. Let him have a shot. Just one shot. He's like, all right. So we're taking the shot, right? We take the shot to John Barr. We take it together. And he's like, Oh my God, man, this is like really fucking smooth. And we're like, Yeah, yeah, obviously it's John Barr. And he's like, No, man. He's like, Yo, I, I don't think I've ever tasted anything like this. And we're like, Yeah, I know. So he's like, shit, man, like. Can I have another? And we're like, oh, dude, like, come on, no, no. So we're like, no, we're cutting you off, right? So then his friend comes, right? And his friend comes and he's like, oh, when you guys drink it, and we're doing the same shit to his friend. And we're like, oh, you can have the Hennessy. And he's like, why? What's that other thing? And his friend is like, yo, bro, I just had it. It's like the most amazing fucking whiskey in the world. And we're like, nah, dude, like, come on, man. You guys aren't even going to chip down. You're going to talk about it. No, we're not letting you have it. So his friend is like, all right, man. He's like, look, you know, not to be a dick, but can I just have one shot? Fine, whatever, man. Just take one shot. And so, you know, we're all doing the shots of John Barnes. Friends like, fuck, man, you're right. Yo, holy shit, where did you guys get this stuff? We're like, no, 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 we're never going to tell you. So, like, literally, as we're going through the night, these guys are consistently talking about it. But what's so great about these studies is that it shows how, like, susceptible the human mind is to bullshit, right? So why I actually (laughs) agree with you, Chuck, is that I actually think in terms of status, it's not the wine per se that's making people feel the dopamine rush, right? It's their interpretation, like what CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy would say, it's the interpretation of what that wine means and what that wine means about me. So that... Wine says about me that I am somebody of high worth, high value, high status. So therefore, I now feel good about it. So here's what I assume happened with these guys. I think they took the shot and they were like, oh, my God, like here's this exclusive thing that these guys won't even let me drink on. So clearly, right, uh, because they're giving me this liquor, that must mean I'm important. That must mean I'm valuable, I'm worthy. So clearly the sort of dopamine hit enhanced the taste of the liquor. So, yeah, I agree with you. I'm sure that's exactly what happened.
1: Yeah, and well, I love, I love that story because it's basically a real – world example of that experiment that plasman and her team carried out at caltech you know 10 10 11 years ago and so yeah the the i guess the lesson from my book leon would be not to not to laugh at those guys anymore right, yeah. right. not to laugh at what dumb shits they were or how you know what weak-minded fools they were
2: yeah.
1: <laughs> that that john what was it john barr
2: John Barr. Yeah. yeah. And by the way, and we also did it because of status seeking, because in some ways, because we felt inferior to him, because we're like, here he is with this hot girl. Yeah, here here he is with this hot girl. We got to put him in his place. We got to show him that we're better than him. And we felt that we were.
0: I actually was hoping that you're going to say you made him pay for it. No, no, no. We didn't (laughs) (laughs) didn't
2: go that far. We didn't go that far. We're like, okay, that's pretty. Dude, that bottle costs like $15 for like a gallon for like the handle. It's pretty (laughs) bad. Um, yeah. But that's interesting. It,
0: it seems that the, uh, so in history, cultural snobbery, right? Uh, the, the way that it was sort of uh, uh, enacted in, in uh, social hierarchies, right? There was a way to convey status when you had like this really expensive bottle of wine, uh, you know, Hennessy, whatever, you name it, right? But it, it seems that that dynamic is is shifting, right? And I was curious, what, what uh, role do you think lowbrow culture is playing in that shift
1: yeah well again i think we're in the middle of what this what i'm calling this shift or this status revolution we're not at the end of it so it's kind of hard to say but i mean clearly when you have um what are becoming widespread i guess you could say social attacks but at least widespread social questioning of who has status in this society, why they have it, what are the historical reasons for why they have it, what are some of the perhaps unjust reason um, for, you know, privilege often, um, <laughs> the words white male tend to go before privilege in our society, but not at all, by the way, these sort of questions are, that's a very localized phenomenon to the United States. I mean, um, privilege and status are being challenged all, all over the world, um, you know, in countries that are, aren't dominated by white males. um but i think when you are doing that when somebody is at a perceived lower level of society than you know others that they are whose whose positions they are challenging that they are going to start valuing the things that they have the things that are important in their society the things that might not cost a ton of money this might be why you know ugly shoes are are a, a sort of status symbol among some women it might be why we see ceos uh, routinely showing up in the boardroom in a you know vintage Texas Rangers jersey
2: or in you know shorts and uh, t-shirts kind of thing right you um, call this counter signaling
1: I don't well, yeah that's I, I didn't coin that phrase but for yeah. sure that that's a term called counter signaling wherein you know very you know th- there's another thing going on here too which is that um, a lot of if you think about who are the boy, i'm getting this huge bright sun so yes i was in portland so it's nice and sunny here but I'm getting this huge light on. um you know a lot of the people who have accumulated a lot of status in society now who own the companies that are very important those are um people from the 1960s and have carried their 19 sort of 60s and 70s counterculture values with them their entire lives and so these are people who have attained this sort of traditional um, markers of status, a lot of money, n- nice cars, big companies, whatnot, power and influence over society. And yet they are still carrying with them these values that were um, part of their social revolution and, and status revolution of the 1960s and 70s. And so they want to make sure that they are um, signaling to their peers that they have not sort of sold out or they have not lost their, that value system that they um, were brought up in. And so that's, what, that's a big part of what counter signaling is all about. Um, you know, it's not, not being the man in the gray, gray flannel suit as the, um, you know, I think it was a 1950s book anyway, but not being the three-piece suit guy, but um, you know, being the guy who can wear his, uh, his T-shirt and his surfer board shorts um, into work if he so chooses. And now that those people are um, you know, in such um, high places in society, those fashion signals have transferred to most of us, right? So now it's it's pretty uncommon to see people going in most professions anyway to see going to work. I'm dressed in a in a tie and a jacket. I'm talking about men here. Um, so that's kind of part of the root of counter signaling. Um, yeah, I, I, I think and also kind of an interesting, weird little sidebar in that too, which is that you know rock star culture, which was just kind of dominated. I mean, the the biggest heroes of, of the cultural revolution yeah. were rock stars, right, in the 60s, 70s, into the 80s, that's, that's less so now, of course. But um, you know, the idea of the, of the guys in Oasis or the Stones showing up and sitting in first class in their ripped jeans and, you know, reeking like bong water and, and having their, their old grotty t-shirt on was kind of this way for them to sort of announce um, that these values are now um, penetrating the culture and are becoming the more highly prized.
2: Yeah, and that's what it's super.
0: Sorry, real quick sidebar just to
1: yeah, what the hell? That sucks, right? Because it's like rock. I grew
0: up with that. It was so cool. Like, you always wanted to dress like, you know, like being a rock star or looking like a rock star was the coolest thing, you know, as far as that goes. And I don't know, I also resonated with the look of it. The thing now is more, it's kind of like, uh, rap, hip hop y yeah, okay. like that kind of vibe, which is cool don't get me wrong I, I have an appreciation for it it's just not something that like i resonate with and i'm like oh what happened to rock like i know it's still out there mm-hmm. but it's not like this Mainstream thing anymore. Yeah, I. But whatever. I. I know we're talking about music right now. Yeah.
2: Well, no. But that's actually. I'm actually gonna. Actually, I'm gonna piggyback off of that. So what's interesting about that? And this is something that I actually did want to talk about. Um. So that status is when you know we talked about the distinction between the good and the bad parts of it. Status is a good thing, as you mentioned with your story about the totem pole. So the idea is that you can take status and you could take marginalized groups and you could bring them sort of up, right? So a good example of this, since you guys brought up music, right? Uh. So sort of people like in kind of more impoverished areas, like let's say like black culture right this is a great example so like things that black people normally would wear like let's say i don't know late 80s right early 90s or whatever so that kind of became popularized and why i sort of like that is be- well first of all i dress like that all the time right uh but why i also like that is because it's taking this thing that's automatically like low class or low brow right sort of gutter wear you know what some people will call like you know they're like oh that's for like those people in the ghetto or whatever and it's making it popularized so what's great about that is that you have marginalized groups of working class people essentially that in some way or another they're finding their ways or they find ways to raise their status by in some ways popularizing like some like brands and obviously types of clothes and whatever it is that they wear you know songs that they sing whatever right but i guess the problem is is that when it becomes corporatized and then of course corporations pick up on this and now it becomes like oh great rich people are doing this shit too and they're dressing like they're from the projects right so how do we kind of make sense of this in terms of the evolution of it because on the one hand right we do want to lift up marginalized groups but on the other hand because you know when it gets kind of corporatized you're like okay great now we want nothing to do with this anymore anymore because it's sort of been co-opted. So how do we kind of make sense of it, or can we even keep like trends pure? Is that even a possibility?
1: I doubt it's a possibility. I think yeah. it's probably just cyclical. Um, one of the things you said, and I, it's, I touch on it pretty briefly, is um, you know, hip hop producer Hype Williams, and and you know, uh, Puff Daddy at the time, but you know, Sean Combs yeah. were really yeah. instrumental in you know, there's there uh, the quote in the book. Um, I tried to talk to Hype Williams, but he was I couldn't get an interview with him. But I picked up some other things that he said, including them in the book about, you know, he said, when I started looking at hip hop videos, rap videos as a kid, they all looked really, they were all shot in junkyards and you know, abandoned streets and garbage because I wanted to take this. So like, so like he takes, right, him and Puffy are start shooting things in mansions and the Hamptons are using those sets. It's like, let's elevate the game here, right? And I think he did sort of exactly what you said, Leon. I mean, he like really took this as a vehicle for uplifting the rap world or the hip hop culture and and making it, um, you know, cool and giving it status, I would say, yeah. by placing it in the same way that that the guys in Oasis should have drunken in their ripped jeans in first class and caused a fight. He placed it right in the mansion of the Hamptons, right? Mm-hmm. And put those um, some of those videos there and, and really flashy. So I think that happened. Now in terms of, that gets kind of to Stephen um, Quartz's book, cool about, you know, once a, a trend kind of takes or becomes corporatized. Well, but here's the deal, right? Rebellion which is often called disruption now. Same thing, really. That's part of a revolution, right? So these revolutions are always have an element of rebellion to them. And the people at the spearhead of that are always going to be the cool ones. They're the ones starting the game. Most people are too afraid to be or, or are too disinterested to be part of a cultural revolution or a status revolution. So the people at the forefront of it are always going to be kind of the leaders and the cool ones. And then the masses will follow along. And then at some point, yeah, it gets corporatized. And, People are going to start to rebel against it. Um, So I don't think to answer your question, there's a necessarily an antidote to it. I don't think there needs to be. I don't necessarily think it's bad that um, a trend gets played out, or you know something that started at the bottom, you know, started at the bottom. Now we're here to Mm -hmm. to extend your uh, hip hop thing is necessarily (laughs) a bad thing. It's just again, I'm not trying to place value judgments on any of this stuff. I'm just trying to kind of report on it and write what I see from the influencers. And so um, yeah. I think that's just going to happen. You know, I, the one, I started the book on a, a chapter on rescue dogs. And, you know, I really, the other thing that got me started on this whole project was this idea of rescue dogs, which <clears throat> now I, I want to separate just for the, for the moment, this idea that rescue dogs are, are a means of virtue signaling for their owners, which they are of course but that that wasn't the part of the rescue dogs that interested me. What interested me was that rescue dogs, their ascension within the dog world is fucking phenomenal, right? If I'm thinking of when I was a kid, there was no such thing as rescue dogs. They were pound dogs, they were stray dogs, they were rounded up by the dog catcher and a needle was stuck into them about a week later if somebody had claimed them at the dog pound. That's what their value was to society. That's where they were within the hierarchy of dogs, of pet dogs. They were nobody's man they were at the bottom so i sat there and i thought well how in the hell did these the, the least likely you know the most devalued members of that community get elevated to this point so quickly that that owning them is a means of virtue signaling that they are now i mean there are laws on the books in most states that kind of protect rescue dogs you know in, in the u.s army if you want to live on base housing now You have, and you want a dog, that dog has to be a rescue dog. It doesn't mean you you have to, you know, if you live off the base or whatever, you have whatever dog you like. But if you want to have that right there, California has all sorts of laws protecting rescue animals. So I really wanted to look at well, how did that happen? first of all, I was looking at where did this term rescue dog come from? It's just kind of a, it just popped up and we all know it suddenly. So I tried mm-hmm. to trace it. It's really hard. I spent a lot of time and, and nobody knows for sure. That term has actually been around since at least the seventies, but it didn't gain a lot of cachet until this woman named Kim Sterla uh, out at the Marin uh, Humane Society in the Bay area in California started using it and applying it to a marketing campaign that mm-hmm. she began in like, the 1990s. Um, so, Anyway, I can't remember what your question was Stephanie. I think it was essentially about. Oh, I know. The, right, rescue dogs. Now, I think we could probably say we're at the maybe at the height. We're just at the zenith of the popularity or the importance of rescue animals. I think maybe a yeah. little more. Maybe some, but but they haven't replaced breed bred dogs or kennel dogs really. And this is another point I like to get to in the book, which I kind of wanted to touch on early about ten minutes ago, which is that when you were talking about what are some of the downsides of status? What are some of the negative parts of it? I actually don't think there's that many, but I think that what this status revolution, the main point of this is that status has traditionally been viewed as a zero sum game. If I have status, that means you don't have as much. Or if Alan suddenly has a lot of status, that means I have to lose mine. Or Leon, you have to lose yours a little bit. You know, if one of the two of you becomes the more popular, becomes the Lionel Richie of this podcast, and <laughs> the other guy's like, "Well, fuck, well, I'm doing just much here. I'm the whole Commodores." <laughs> uh, yeah, so- but, but, but status doesn't have to be a zero-sum game, and that's what's being that's what's being pitched by marketers. Um, excuse me. Um, that status is for everyone that's this weird oxymoron that's at the, the at the foundation of this new kind of drive for status and so I might leave it to you to tell me what the negative parts of status are other than maybe excessive pride
0: so what's interesting is um so, as far as create, creating sort of an equitable cultural landscape, as far as that goes, it is actually kind of interesting that marketers are creating that that sort of illusion that you you could get status in all these different kinds of ways. But actually, I could I could see that in in a way, right? Like somebody else has status because, let's say, they're rich, uh, they have a, a Bugatti, they have the mansion, all that. Well, okay, well. Um, This is just an example, but, oh, uh, I play uh, video games, I'm number one in this particular hierarchy, or my friends think I'm really good. And therefore, I'm really popular amongst my friends. And uh, even though that doesn't equate wealth and that, you know, that social value, uh, at least as far as that dopamine in your brain or how your brain lights up in that um, that MRI scan, there, it, it's not equal but there's you're gaining you're gaining you're getting something from that uh, and it's interesting so if you can't excel in this one hierarchy, you could just go to another one uh, and there's so many different uh, niches now that somebody can go to, especially yeah. with the advent of social media and all these different uh, meetup groups and and all of that. I wonder if maybe there is, I mean, it does sound like we are getting very uh, well, Wait, can uh, I, divided.
2: Can I add something to that? Uh,
0: sure. Let me just finish this real quick point. So it does sound like we're getting uh, divided, right? In terms of w- having a uh, 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 one view of what's popular and what's not popular or what conveys status and what doesn't. So there is a sort of division taking place. Sure. But from another perspective, because there's all these different avenues where you can gain status from, that's... I wonder what the potential is in that, in terms of that equitable cultural landscape. Maybe maybe there is some hope for uh, less comparing because, oh, I can't advance in this hierarchy. Right. I'm just going to go to this other one. Maybe, yeah.
2: but that's just... Yeah. Yeah, So I would add, um, so in terms of also popularity, it's incredibly hard for us to predict like what will and won't work. So corporations don't really know, right? So they just say like, okay, here are the trends and we're just going to keep up with them or whatever. So since we were talking about rap music, I really love this as an example, because this is like the plot of the new season of the Wu-Tang show on Hulu uh, called an American saga. So what's so cool is that like, there are these uh, kind of uh, pivotal moments in the show where they try to figure out like, okay, do we do like this corporate thing or do we try to kind of go off on our own and do sort of the stuff for the streets, right? There's stuff that like just regular people will love. And so what's interesting in the show is that, and this is obviously a true story, is you have like Rizzo where he starts off, um, so he was, uh, what was it? Prince Rakim, right? So he was like pretty much like every rapper in the 80s at the time. He was signed to Tommy Boy Records. And then so like, so they told him like, hey man, like, you know, we're not going to bring your crew with you. You're the guy that we want, right? So, you know, he has this like kind of a internal struggle. Like, what do I do? Do I bring my friends with me or do I try to do this thing on my own and maybe like bring them along later on? So, okay. So he doesn't do that, right? He doesn't take them with him. So he becomes Prince Rakim. So it's the same sort of. Cookie cutter, like generalized music. He's like rapping for girls. He's like, This shit is stupid. I don't look like this. I don't dress like this. Like, I don't want to do this. Right. So essentially, it doesn't work out. And so he's like, What the fuck? He's like, I kind of sacrificed my soul or, you know, what I thought was real or genuine or whatever for this. Right. And it didn't work out. And so essentially, Tommy Boy Records is like, Yo, look, sorry, kid. Like, you know, we try to do what we can, what we could for you. And, you know, it's kind of over now. And so now Riz is pissed off and he's like, Yo, fuck this. He's like, The next time I do this, he's like, Not only am I taking the entire crew with me, but we're going to do we want to do we're going to sing what we want to sing we're going to put out records on our own we're just going to figure this shit out and like what people like if it if it hits and it becomes popular great and if not he's like i'm never going to go through this shit again and you see this trend in rap music from like dmx tupac is a big one where he said something like you know i'm not writing songs for like the people who will like listen to them and then put them down the next day i'm literally writing it for the kid that lives a thug life and feels like it's hopeless so my point is to say that popularity is unpredictable and with corporations all they're doing is just following trends and often what you see is that when you are kind Kind of a disruptor, or a rebeller or whatever you want to kind of call it. When you do go against the grain and you're presenting something to people, and now we're back to the beginning of the podcast where we're, you're presenting real art, like art that actually touches people's everyday experiences, that speaks to them and lets them feel heard. That shit oftentimes, man, becomes way more popular than any of those trends. And that's kind of the point of the Wu Tang show. It's like when you hear these records and you're like, oh shit, like this is my everyday life. This is what I want to listen to. I don't want to listen to like you know corporate like uh, corporate sponsored music or whatever. And then yeah, you sort of find that you know essentially there's this other way of doing it and yeah it's not a zero-sum game you'll have like guys like drake or whatever these people are always going to be popular but then you're always going to have rappers that literally come out of nowhere and it's again because they speak to everyday experiences and just super
0: quick are are you also in that i could almost gauge because there was that question um chuck asked where what what do you what do you think are the negative implications of status seeking yeah uh that's interesting uh because in what you just said People who are status seeking and not necessarily creating um, from themselves yep. or creating culture, consuming culture yes. rather, uh, they may, it sounds
2: like they're sacrificing their soul just to gain status yeah i love that and then also the other thing and this is i'd say this is i would say if there's a big downside this is where the wu-tang show uh, touches on or this is what the wu-tang show touches on right so initially bobby so there is a character so bobby wanted to do something that was for people you know he's like the point is to save our culture for our people right and that's now as the show is coming to an end that's what they keep talking about right like how do we keep uh or how do we prevent these companies from stealing black culture because this is ours for us you know that's the kind of fubu brand and so for them the idea idea was that I'm producing music for people to show them that they matter, that their voices are heard, and that their voices deserve a platform. When you are sacrificing that, and when you become a Prince Rakim, right, and you're just making like songs for like, you know, women to get laid or whatever, essentially, now you no longer care about the community. It's not important to you. So now you're doing, you're seeking status for the sole purpose of seeking status. Whereas I know, and you're big on this, right? Just like with our podcast, I would hope that this is what we're doing. And I know you definitely are, um, is that we're doing the podcast for another end. And like, look, if the status comes with it, great but it's the podcast for like the community or the culture or whatever and that's what i love about rap music is that essentially the status comes after the fact but that's not the purpose of what they're doing mm-hmm.
1: well you know what i thought as you guys were talking and i hadn't thought of it before but particularly in the, in the music business but with a lot of trends right the people that are the disruptors. Real quick, Slabber, you're cool if you're a a rebel or a disruptor if you're successful at it. (laughs) If you're not successful at it, you're the worst. But if you're a successful disruptor, right, basically you are in a lot of ways chasing the money. And but once you're what you're saying, I hear you saying, is that once you attain that money, you're starting to lose your cachet a little bit within that community. And so that presents a pretty big conundrum. I like that you're talking about music. You know, you mentioned at the top that I, did this documentary for Paramount Plus called Sometimes When We Touch, which is the sort of history of soft rock. And that just came out recently, so I feel okay to talk about it. But, you know, one of the things I thought was really interesting and that I did want to explore in that show was, here were these musicians in the 70s and 80s from the Carpenters to Captain and Tennille to Air Supply to Dan Hill, who wrote Sometimes When We Touch. Huge commercial success. I mean, these guys are outselling. Led Zeppelin and CCR and Hendrix and the Ramones and the Sex Pistols by, by Barry Manilow. All you hear about is the Sex Pistols and Ramones. Barry Manilow sold 50 times more records than those two combined in half of their career. right? And yet, wow. at the same time, they had this huge commercial success. They were completely belittled by critics. Even, you know, by radio DJs were spinning their records and, you know, teeing them up with a shitty intro, you know? More cheese from the Cheese King, you know, Anne Murray or whatever, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, So it was this weird paradox for me that I really wanted to get into in that show that I think you're kind of touching on here, um, which is huge commercial profitability and success. And suddenly you're not you don't have this status within your community anymore, even though prior to your ascension to that level, monetary, you know, being number one, having a number one record was supposedly what gave you all the status? And it's like, well, fuck, I got the number one record and now you're shitting on me, <laughs> you know? And I don't know if, if, if there's a, a parallel there there in the hip hop world or not. Um, I talked to, not, not for soft rock, I wouldn't consider Rick Springfield soft rock, but I interviewed him once um, some years ago. And he, hmm. he told me, he goes, I have experienced um, being at the top of my game professionally on every magazine cover, my song was everywhere. And making money and being disrespected at the same time yeah it, a, it really it really did a mind fuck on i mean, i don't know that he used that term but he kind of that's basically what he said
2: mm-hmm.
1: What's, It's interesting in the music world in particular entertainment when somebody breaks off you know i, I used the lionel richie uh, example before i mean it, it worked out for him and yet uh you know the nobody ever slagged off on lionel is with the commodores but when he you know gained this huge elevated success he was suddenly this super uncool guy getting memed for hello and
2: things like that. Right. Yeah. And what's so interesting about music is that, like, it's sort of a thin line because, on the one hand, you do want to have like collaborations and you want to, you know, do music with people who are already super famous and popular. But yeah, that does like lose some credibility for you, especially like for hip hop, especially. I don't know about maybe for other genres, maybe not. But for hip hop, well, actually, no, like for punk rock, totally. Right. Especially for punk, you know, if you're doing collaborations, yeah, 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 with like, you know, some of the top singers, I mean, people are going to be like, wow, dude, like, you fucking sold out. So it's sort of this thin line. Yeah. Do
1: they still, is that term, you know, in, in that doc dance? hill talked about that term sold out is that Mm -hmm. term still pretty prevalent do you think or is that i mean that was a term that i used to hear hear all here you do i mean people are still sort of looked down upon for selling out yeah yeah and
0: i would say actually you know no you're right you're right i I haven't heard that in in a while last like uh, oh like uh, metallica you know or you know oh like this band is selling out because they signed with uh, or or they're like.
2: Um... Uh, I forgot. It was a Napster, I, I but forgot. that was ages ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but I mean, technically, I don't know if the term is used, but yeah, it's still thought of because if you think about it, there's a certain community that propels you forward, right? So if it's hip hop, right, you have you know your sect, uh demographic, and then the same thing with punk, and yeah, they don't like that. So the idea is like, hey, we don't listen to this music, we don't buy your albums, or you know, in this case, MP3s or whatever, to listen to this, right? So when you're making duets with Mariah Carey, that's not what we were hoping for. That's not why we kind of help propel you to the top. So I think there's sort of, uh, and this happens with sports too, you know, there's sort of an allegiance to a fan base that that helps you you know that kind of propels you upward so that's why it's such a thin line you know what you know it was the last time i heard the term
0: sellout but it wasn't music related mm. uh, it was um and i don't know how many people think this but joe rogan for example when he signed on with spotify yeah uh, yeah some, I, that,
1: there, well, I, I would i would i would maybe argue a little bit this and i think the stigma around commercial success is not as great as it might have been you know, that was the whole story of the alternative rock scene in the 80s. You know, it was like R.E.M. and the replacements. And, you know, when would one jump to a major, right? It was all these indie labels and, you know, the replacements were on Twin Tone, this cool label out of um, Minneapolis. And R.E.M. was with their guys down in Athens. And Sub Pop, you know, started as just a little, you know, bedroom Seattle thing. Um, but it was like, I think it was when, War- when R.E.M. signed on to Warner for the first, you know, first of those indie alt-rock college rock, big bands that went major label. That was a big deal, right? That was this big sellout moment, but REM just got more popular. They transcended it and their music maybe by some accounts even got better. So I don't know. I feel like that stigma is a little bit less than it was at sellout, but your Joe Rogan example is pretty good one. I hadn't thought of that.
0: I guess. Yeah. And even then that one's a sort of a gray zone, just some people. Guess, saw it he that, was even,
1: like... wasn't his like the big early success. Anyway, was on a network reality show right wasn't it the fear factor Fear Fear
0: factor Factor. but then
1: at least he came on in my Joe Rogan is really interesting in that career trajectory because at least in my mind I first became aware of him as the host of fear factor in Mm -hmm. which um in in my viewing he appeared like okay just another sort of cheesy over-the-top exaggerated host of one of these unscripted unscripted reality shows and I was like eh, okay whatever I don't know who this guy is but he's just some network you know hype guy but then he kind of i don't know he he found this other community and uh, has, has built an entirely different reputation than that you know for better mm-hmm. or worse i mean i know some people love him some people don't but um i happen to like joe rogan or at least be entertained by him i've never met him i don't know if i like, him, but no, I like his, same. Public, his public persona entertains me in the same way you know howard Stern does.
0: Yeah, real, real quick aside. So speaking of Howard Stern, there was a show called the Opie and Anthony before that uh, was kind of like Howard Stern, but it was a little bit more of like a hang type show. So they'd have on comedians all the time. And so they would just shoot the shit talk about whatever and comedians would tell the best stories people get really honest deep emotional it wasn't like bits like that they do on a radio show so it felt very raw and real and probably the appeal uh so rogan would appear for example on that opie and anthony show and people started getting exposure to to him and then he started uh copying the guy anthony from the show doing like some kind of a live stream uh, and then that's how his uh, podcast started. He started just live streaming, him talking with his friends, just shooting the shit, kind of copying uh, that Opie and Anthony uh, format. And then it just grew and grew and grew and grew. Ad ad uh, advertisers came on eventually as the audience grew, and then eventually he just shot up so high that like he, Spotify's like, "Hey, here's a hundred million or two hundred million dollar a year, yeah, contract and." Yeah, he's like now like a thought leader, essentially, basically, right. and controversial uh, too, you know, but that's inevitable, right? You're going to say something to a mass group of people. Of course, it's going to be polarizing. And uh, he
2: has I'm some talking. responsibility for that, too. Let's no, be- no, no, no. I'm just yeah, being yeah. Ge- I'm just general. Yeah,
0: you say anything. And in- if me and you started talking there. even if you said the most nuanced version of trying to explain something like even nice like you should be good to people or something somehow it's somebody is gonna have a problem but that's
2: not the case with rogan though
0: i'm just saying i'm not i'm not i'm not trying to okay (laughs) well we're getting off of the book right now we're getting into (laughs) rogan it's
1: interesting i want to ask you about opie and anthony i know that show but was it syndicated was that a radio show because i've heard that show and i don't know did they have some deal on comedy central for a while i know i've uh,
0: they, they were yeah, they were uh syndicated through uh like in New York through WNEW and then okay. uh, I must
1: have been then some Market and heard them
0: and then got onto to Sirius XM and then where where uh Howard uh, is currently then then uh the uh host of that show said some really uh horrible controversial stuff on Twitter. Uh I can't believe I'm talking about this. Anthony Cumia, and then the whole show got canceled and it's okay. it's a different iteration now on SiriusXM.
1: Maybe that's where I know them from. So, okay. Yeah. No, I don't I like I love talking. I mean, my I started in radio until I realized I did not have a <laughs> didn't have a radio. I didn't have a, not the, I had the radio face but not the radio voice. So I got of- a <laughs>
2: But. Yeah. Well, so, you yeah, say, as we just, you know, start wrapping up another point that I really wanted to focus on. So in terms of, we talked about some of the downsides of status, right? So excessive pride, right? Or narcissism. So this is what we're, so this is kind of the, what happens when the culture is obsessed with status. You sort of take, you overcompensate, right? You take things that shouldn't necessarily represent or mean as much as they do. And you kind of blow them up and you even exaggerate some of your achievements, right? So you talk about um, the kind of correlation between sports cars and penis size. And I really, I really love that, right? So because what that tells you is that, oh, OK, so this is sort of uh, what is a uh, remember that Dave Chappelle skit where it was like uh, something gone real where it's like uh, this one going real goes horribly wrong. Right. So that's what <laughs> yeah. I kind of think of. Right? <laughs> right. So this is like when static C goes wrong. Right. So when we start doing things like this. So can we talk about that?
1: Yeah, we can. So that cha- <laughs> I think that chapter sort of both helped and hurt the book a little bit. I mean, essentially what I the so I commissioned a study, an academic study, with a professor, a sociologist, out at University College of London in England. Out at I act like I'm out in London all the time. Um, to to take on this um, well-known, you know, joke or trope or whatever that guys who drive sports cars or flashy cars are doing so to compensate for for a smaller than average penis. Right? We all know that joke. There's not a person on earth that doesn't realize that. I mean, Greta Thunberg just made that that little clap back, you know, on her Twitter to the guy right in January or something who said, Oh, Greta, check out my 12 Ferraris and
2: sheep, State,
1: yeah. hashtag small dick energy, right? Mm-hmm. That's how widespread that thing. But I thought, well, how do we do it? Does anybody really know that? Is everybody, anybody ever really tried to um, put some academic study to, to show whether that was true or not? And my reason for doing that was I thought it would be kind of a funny little, uh, study to do but really what I wanted to do with that study and as I alluded to earlier I think one of the the pushers of this status revolution is academia and the way that um, um status is studied who it's studied by how the studies are carried out that's so what I really wanted to do was kind of have get an inside look at the world of academia and you know you see these things where it's like um you know my my favorite example is well whatever I want to get into that but you know researchers have found that, you know, prehistoric man, you know, preferred fish over, I don't know what, you know, whatever, two and three, mm-hmm. you know, prehistoric people were bisexual or something like that, right? You'll see that. Mm-hmm. So I really wanted to see how these studies are carried out. And that was the interesting part of that to me. Um, so we, I, we got a hold of this um, professor, Daniel Richardson at University College London, who's known for doing these kind of eclectic and uh, hot studies convinced him somehow to go along with this. And so we did it. And we hired, we got a team of student researchers who all turned out to be women from three different countries, which wasn't planned that way. It's just who answered our job posting. But I think it's pretty typical of, you know, um, 30 years ago, you would not have, if you were trying to study um, male genitalia, you would not have the the sort of cohort that we had that was studying it, right? And so the questions they came up with differed, the conclusions they came up with what we ended up finding was that it indeed it turned out that men who at least thought or per, perceived themselves to have a smaller than average penis were drawn to sports cars and flashy cars more often than men who were not in the same uh penis threatened condition which is wow what, scientific yeah. evidence <laughs> i know they kinda, i really loved it just because the you know all this all this academic terminology and they put this penis threatened condition so we tried mm-hmm. to put guys in a penis threatened condition and then sort of find out if what what sort of um consumer goods they were most attracted to as a result I and mean, it's whatever right so that was the study and of course that's been lambasted in circles as being very uh sophomoric or juvenile undertaking by me i feel like any but but it's it's, bullshit. it's not i mean men men google um and the penis is the most googled body part <laughs> in all of Google searches, right? Men clearly care about it, um, and men clearly care about the size of their penis in comparison to other guys. I mean, that's just that's just a fact. And mm-hmm. so to think that it's sophomore to sort of wonder why that is, or to sort of try to put some academic study behind it, feels sophomore to me to make fun of that. So you know, it's funny that study and that chapter has gotten a, got a ton of public. I've done a ton of interviews in Europe. A Swiss car magazine, and a German magazine, and an Irish radio station, and uh, I just did a thing with the Italian La Repubblica newspaper about that. Um, the American um, reaction to that chapter and study seems to be to be embarrassed by it, or to say it's shit and it's stupid. But the Europeans seem to like it a lot. <laughs>
2: Yeah, we're pretty uptight here. That works. Uptight. No, I mean, yeah. hey,
0: any press—it's good. It's good press. Well, that, and as, it's as also, far as Europe goes, and
2: it's yeah. also an important study. I mean, we're talking correlations. Like, why shouldn't we know about these things? And also, I mean, it's fucking obvious. Like, these studies already probably reinforce common sense anyway. So why is this problematic? And put- well yeah. A, oh yeah, sorry.
1: No, I was just gonna say, to me, it was really about being involved in the process. It's, I could have, I could have chosen any sort of study to do. I found one funny, and I, I thought, it, I thought other people might find it funny or eye-catching or something, but. Uh
0: go ahead yeah Uh, no uh, no i think that it's just uh if people here are reacting to it right i still feel that's good it's better than uh, indifference right at least they care they do care about it they're going to say something if they say something negative about it it's still a form of uh emotion investment in in the writing so technically it's it's a net positive although I, i would agree you you would prefer i mean me me too uh like you know somebody saying something good about that chapter versus something bad but
1: i don't well, know it is it is of... a really interesting thing to me too in that um right we've we've always traditionally looked at cars expensive cars lamborghini or your Tesla rosa or you know, ford mustang vintage as a status symbol i mean cars emerged in the 20th century as really the ultimate status symbol um particularly for males right it was, i mean you could have a, a, a million dollar mansion, but you couldn't park it downtown or drive it around and show everybody, right? I mean, so You're this, right. this when, when cars were invented, this kind of combination of scientific technology, um, of money, you know, they're expensive, of a of flash of, of aesthetic appeal, of wealth, of mobility, which were, was really valued, right? As, as the 19th century turned to 20th century, um, it just became this pinnacle of the status symbol. And yet at the most base form of guy status symbols is guys, right? When they're kids checking out other guys in a locker room or something. I mean, that just happens and it does kind of establish this weird hierarchy or this um, anxiety, this status anxiety that guys will have. Well, wow, maybe I will not be as attractive to the girls in my school now because of you know my inadequacy here. So it kind of is what to me was this marriage of almost the most lowest form or base form of status anxiety, status seeking, and at what one time at least was a really and still is a very high, um, you know, expensive part of status seeking.
2: Yeah. And for a lot of men, I mean, this is like the horrible part. And I know we didn't really get into this too much. This is like now going into clinical territory. Um, so status seeking becomes, you know, we talked a little bit about obsession, but it becomes such an obsessive drive where everything that you get, even relationships are just a symbol of your status. So it's not, you know, I'm meeting this girl because maybe I like her. I want to have a family or whatever. It's the family as an indicator of status, her appearance, who she is in the kind of community or whatever, how she's valued. That's an indicator of status. And so for those people, they're so kind of self-absorbed. And this is the huge the. Deba- the biggest downside of status is that when again it becomes an end in itself that nothing else really matters to you and you don't really form intimate bonds with other people because again it's just a means to an end
0: right yeah ego and status sort of go hand in hand right like you identify with the things that that you have your your place in society what does this mean to other people who am i in relation to all these others and then anything that deviates from that will cause you to react in all kinds, all sorts of ways or feel lower emotions. And it's like this thing that if you care about can really play with your psyche essentially, and also distract you from the things that might really matter, like to your point, yeah. right? Like, um, actually genuinely seeking those things, uh, for themselves rather than yeah. And, that, for status. Right. and
2: that's why we kind of made the, we gave the example of like music, right? Cause the point really of music is to connect with other people. I mean, ultimately, you know, and I know this is maybe like purity or whatever, but that's kind of what it is, right? We want to put out music like I write, right? So I write because I want my audience to identify with it and say, oh shit, like I see myself in it. And I'm really grateful you put that out, but yeah, man, it's like status in the way it corrupts. Like it's sort of, again, when it becomes then in itself, you stop really caring too much about how people react unless it's, again, it sort of propels you forward. Mm. And so well, that kind of happens with narcissism.
1: but if if any impulse if uncontrolled can lead to problems right i mean maybe one of the things in the value of this discussion that we're having or perhaps somebody might find some value of that in my book is that is to understand these these impulses and where they come from and why we have them and what what value they do have what why they are important or at least why they are inevitable anyway in society um but i mean a guy or woman you can you can do anything too much right yes Um, you know so
0: that's fair yeah there, there's no there's a utility to status yeah so right? i think like,
1: this thing that yeah. going after status and it leads to all these terrible things well yeah it does if you do it to excess yeah, um that if makes you sense. Yeah. you know drink caffeine too much i mean you know one cup of coffee or you might know, like to tea fine but if i'm drinking eight cups of coffee a day that's gonna really <laughs> fuck with my physiology right
2: um yeah, yeah and i think that And I think the thinking here is that status has to be just one component of what makes up a good life. You know, now we're going into philosophy a little bit here. So the idea is like, yeah, everybody needs status. Like, obviously we see, again, going back to psych studies, is that people who are of low status and who do have low self-esteem tend to have poor outcomes mental health-wise, and they should, right? So I think the thinking is like, you know, what we talked about earlier, what you said, Chuck, is that it's not a zero-sum game. So we need some degree of status and we need to feel like we're an important member of our community. But yeah, the idea is that we have like, you know, these other things that we focus on, like again, relationships. Uh, You know, for podcasters, right, you know, connecting to the community in an educational way. Uh, You know, if you're a therapist or whatever, you know, helping people in that way or whatever. If you're a writer, sort of relating to people, helping them see that their voices are heard. You know, so the point is to say that, yeah, you're right. Status in itself is never a good or a bad. It's pretty much its utility and how it's used. So
1: well, where do you guys, I have one point I want to make because I just, you made me think of something, but I mean,
2: mm-hmm.
1: your podcast is really interesting week to week or month We month, how often you do it. Where, where does status kind of fit into what you two see as the
2: mission of this podcast? I and love why, this. Why are we talking about, why am I here? <laughs> I love this question because, you know, he and I actually kind of disagree on it.
0: Um, yeah, we were talking about this before the podcast yeah. and like one of his patients said to him like, Oh, that's great. You have a podcast. Uh, so you're, you're trying to be a thought leader or you're a thought leader. Yeah. Right. And then he, and then like, we're talking about it and he's like, yeah, so, uh, that, that, that would be our status. Right. We're like, we're trying to, uh, be thought leaders and influencers. Right. Yeah. And then I started to like disagree. I'm like, no not really like i don't know like i just want to like help people and stuff like that and then help lead their thought and then i'm just i was joking though right because then he's like that's the thought later yeah yeah uh no i mean yeah i suppose that um just just already being a podcaster confers some sort of status i guess versus like your uh non-podcaster friends like if they're like oh you're a podcaster that's cool what's your podcast about cool. And then like, you get some kind of something from that, which is great. Yep. Uh, But then of course there's still a hierarchy within podcasting where you're like, Oh, what's my podcasting level versus that podcaster versus that one. But then uh, where I get into like, not care, trying not to care about it is like he resists. I, I don't know. It's like a, I feel like if you care about it, it distracts from the, from the art of it. Like you almost want to do as best of a job as you can. Yeah. So uh, you know that that, that me, feels like the main you
2: know order. okay so for me why I'm always mindful about status and how we compare it to other podcasts is because I'm always asking like what makes us special how do we differentiate from the pack right so for me status is important not just as a means to it but a means in itself right because it definitely is I mean I'm sorry and end to it and an then in itself obviously it's gonna be but also because it sort of gets us you know kind of uh, publicity right so it gets us publicity it gets us an audience it gets us viewers and the idea is most importantly to me is that our ideas to get taken seriously so what I find Is that if we are going to compete in the podcasting realm and that is what we are doing i know you hate that but we are competing so we have to have our ideas taken seriously and the only real way to do that is to obviously at least care about what they are and to work on them and to maybe not necessarily consider yourself as a thought leader but to strive for it
0: what if we're not competing we're collaborating
2: other podcasts
0: and authors and guests. I mean, that's Ed- all collaboration yeah i
1: i probably really little more to alan's point of view even coming on these shows causes me a little stress and anxiety i i don't like the idea that i have to be uh, I, I wrote this thing. most writers become writers because they're introverts and they do best sort of sitting at a keyboard or writing in a journal or something uh, quietly alone and and um And that that typically is how I am. I've kind of trained myself to be a little bit more extroverted on um, things like this or talk, but I'm never comfortable with it. Alan, I've got a quote. I don't, I should look it up. It's either Sylvia Plath or Emily Dickinson who said, publishing is not the business of poets. Basically meaning that you just write your poem. I don't want to worry about selling the fucking thing. I don't want to worry about edits or packaging or talking about it right? It's just, I'm just here to write my poem and put it out in the world. And you, you love it and lap it up like little kittens at a saucer of milk, right? <laughs> Unfortunately in our world. So I have to um, give a point to Leon here. <clears throat> we all know you can have the greatest idea in the world. And if you don't promote, it's going, going nowhere. Um, yeah. My book might be great. It might suck, but no one's going to know the difference if I don't kind of compete. Yeah. As, um, yeah. As said.
2: Yeah. And, and my, my one like sort of slight criticism to the both of you would be that you guys are either paying for or you're getting the publicity somehow. Right. So, yes, you might not be the one self-promoting, quote unquote, but somebody's doing the promotion for you. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Real quick point. Yeah.
0: I am aware that there is an importance to, of course, uh, marketing yeah. and people are not going to, uh, you know, see your you need them to see your stuff there. There is a metrics based like, yeah. aspect to this It's just that you would I would like to just. Lean more towards like ah, oh, I just want to concentrate on the the art and the and
2: the writing and the you know. I try guess who does the promotion?
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, but I yeah. bet. Are you yeah. guys? Are you familiar with the uh, Canadian novel? Well, he's not more of the novelist, Canadian writer named Robertson Davies. He died in the nineties. He wrote these great. He's he's widely considered, if not the greatest. I guess Margaret Atwood now, but one of the greatest Canadian writers, novelists, he, he wrote a lot of uh, stage plays. I, I really love, he wrote a lot about um, ego and it, I mean, these Freudian kind of things, but just really just about, um, you know, our, our egos and our sense of self and worth and how we get that, how we attain that. I, I really, I, I interviewed him, I was shortly before he died and I asked him, I said, well, Do you have a, do you have a big ego? Do you, you know, what's, what's a, what's your assessment of your ego? The story's not as great if you're not a Robertson Davies fan, but he, he did did definitely admit that he had a very well-developed ego and that he, you know, fed it and this and that. He was very candid about all that. Mm -hmm. Um, Anyway, after the, I'll, I'll, I'll dig up one of the 20 Robertson Davies books. I haven't send you a title or two because he was really wrote a book. I think it was called the. May, i thing called the Deptford trilogy, and I know the first part of that, which uh, I forget the name of the. I think the second one was a book called The Manticore that he really got into that these kind of um, um, mm-hmm. themes, and he was really, really intel, brilliant, super smart guy about it. Um, but one thing to get back to this whole. Um, the status revolution and this sort of zero-sum game and the problems of status. I often think about that couple in St. Louis a few summers ago standing on the their front lawn of their mansion waving their automatic or the guy did anyway, you know, in his pink polo shirt or whatever, at the, the social justice marchers, protesters going by, right? He felt really threatened by that clearly, <laughs> come out on your lawn with an automatic or something, but, right? To do that. But I think that's a guy that's classically misreading what this status revolution is all about and the paradigm it seeks to overturn. It it, it does not mean that because I am demanding some status or that I am attaining some new level of status that you have to lose yours. That doesn't mean that your place in society is going to suffer just because my own is elevated. And that's a really hard concept for people to get their heads around because we have always looked at status as this, as we said, I've got status, you don't. Oh, you've got some now. I don't have as much. That's not how it works. And but for for you know, basically all of human societies, you know, as I said, Western society, that's how we've tended to think of status. But that's the that's the basic paradigm and the shift that this I think that this status revolution is seeking to overturn. Yeah. And I think most people really misread it
2: yeah, and I would just end it off on this note. in terms of like just psychoanalytic territory, what we would say is that it's not that these dark impulses or darker, you know shadows or whatever. So it's not that they're bad, right? Like sort of status seeking. they only get Don't bad you just call just- it dark. So all right, let me just, let me be clear. I I don't mean that in terms of morality. Here's what I mean by dark. So, okay. No, I'm going to define it. Okay. So what we mean by dark is just, we mean by unconscious, right? So something that's sort of like, uh, yeah, yeah. So what we mean is something that's unacknowledged, right? That's what I mean by dark, right? So Jung calls this the shadow, right? It's not that it's bad or good or whatever. We're not thinking about it moralistically. We're just thinking about it as something that's sort of like projected outward, right? So yeah. So when I'm thinking about, uh, right. So in terms of psychoanalysis, the idea is that these darker sort of impulses, that it's not that they're good or bad, but the point. Is to say that when you're in denial of them, right, then they become uncontrollable, right? Sort of you're doing these things and you're sort of again unacknowledged and you're kind of in denial of them, and they're sort of they run uh they run roughshod, right? You know, sort of they're like all over the place, and you, you don't control them because you don't you're not really aware of them. And so you know, again, going into the kind of psychoanalytic tradition, what they would say is it's not that this thing is either good or bad in itself, it's pretty much like what is it kind of doing to you or how is it affecting your life? So, you know, a psychoanalyst would say, Well, you should probably acknowledge it and accept this, and I would argue you should too my friend is that that we care about promotion right that we care about promoting ourselves we care about status but yes the idea is the more we acknowledge it the less it sort of controls us as opposed to you know we us controlling it so all right alan final questions for Chuck before we wrap up yes uh
0: where can we uh follow you and um where can we buy the book
1: well i'm pretty easy to follow at chuckthompson.com so that's there was the only other famous chuck thompson out there was a baltimore orioles baseball announcer and he often comes up first on your search but if you just go chuckthompson.com that's me um book is well shoot i don't know it's in some brick and mortar stores i guess in the chains and whatnot and your your nicer independent stores might have ordered it but it's i mean it's um put out by simon and schuster so it's pretty available on on anywhere that you buy books online um i don't have a preference i don't um I'm not down on certain sellers as some people are, but I won't, you know, it's easy to find it anywhere you buy books.
2: All right, Chuck, thank you so much for coming on, man. This was one of my favorite podcasts. Fun fun podcast.
1: Yeah, it's a cool conversation. I enjoyed it, you guys. Thanks for having me.
2: Absolutely, man. We'll talk to you soon. All right.
1: All right.
0: Awesome. So everyone, if you want to follow us, you can follow us at Seize the Moment Podcast on Facebook, on Instagram, and on Twitter, where Seize underscore podcast, like, subscribe, hit hit the the bell bell on on YouTube. YouTube. And again, thank you so much for watching and see you next time.